The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. We come back once more to consideration of these verses, this most pregnant and important statement in which the apostle reminds us of the nature of the conflict which we have in this world. Everybody has this conflict, but only those who are Christian are aware of it. And the apostle is concerned that these Ephesians, after all the mighty doctrine that he has unfolded before their eyes and expounded to them, should realize that they are set in the midst of this mighty spiritual conflict. He emphasizes, you notice, that it's not a mere conflict against men. It isn't flesh and blood. It isn't man. That's not the problem. The problem of the world is the problem of these unseen spiritual forces, these principalities and powers, the world rulers of this darkness, spiritual wickedness in high or in heavenly places. Now, we were concerned last Sunday morning to uh, trace and to look into the origin of these forces and powers. For obviously that's a question that must present itself to every thoughtful person. Believing in God as we do, well then, what is the origin of evil? Where have these powers come from? And we consider together the biblical teaching with respect to that. And we saw that there had been a great pre-cosmic fall, that before the world as we know it and men were ever created, there had been a fall in the angelic realm, and thus Satan, the devil, the fallen angels, demons, evil spirits, had come into being. And then how, when God had made the world and had made men, and it was perfect in paradise, this enemy came in. And men foolishly listened to his suggestion, fell victim to his subtlety, to what we, what is described here as the wiles of the devil, with the result that men fell. And the important thing for us to bear in our minds is this, that that fall of men resulted in the fact that man has been subjugated by the devil and he is in the dominion of Satan, in the kingdom of the devil, the kingdom of darkness. These are the terms that are implied so constantly in the scripture. The important point being, therefore, that man is no longer free. He is the slave of sin, the slave of the devil, under the dominion and the power of the devil, the prince of the power of the air, as the apostle has called him in the second verse of the second chapter of this great epistle, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Very well, the important uh, principle which we therefore keep in our minds is this, 
that the only way to understand the long story of the human race is to realize that it is the result of that. That's the only key to history, any sort of history, secular history, as well as this more purely spiritual history that we have in the Bible. You cannot understand the history of mankind apart from this great principle. History is the record of the conflict between God and his forces and the devil and his forces. Now, there is the great controlling principle, I say, which is so important, uh, not only to an understanding of past history, but uh, to an understanding of what is happening in the world today. It's the only key to the understanding of the future. It is the only way to understand also our own individual experiences, as I'm hoping to be able to show you partly this morning. Very well, then, here is the position by which we are confronted. The devil and all these subsidiary powers and forces that operate at his behest and under his control and power has as one object only, as his one central object, to destroy God's work. The devil, having lifted himself up with pride, having become jealous of God who had made him and who had given him life and being and authority and power, he fell and was punished and is confined as the result of this punishment within certain limits, and he hates that. And in order to vent his spleen upon God, his one great concern is, as I say, to bring disorder into God's perfect creation. So his main tactic always is to produce confusion, to produce a state of trouble and of chaos. And therefore, above everything else, his supreme ambition is to separate man from God and to do everything that lies within his power uh, to hinder men from worshipping God and obeying God and living to the glory of God. Man, after all, is the highest part of God's great work in creation. There is nothing higher than man. Man was made the Lord of creation. He's over the whole of creation. Man is the supreme being under God. And therefore, obviously, he is the very special object of the attacks and the onslaughts of the devil. And therefore, we find, looking through the history and through the teaching as we find it here, that the devil has concentrated his attention upon man. And that is the object, to keep him from God and from living the kind of life for which God intended him. Well, now, how does the devil carry on this work? How is this work put into operation? And the answer is, uh, according to the teaching that one finds in the various parts of the Bible, that it is done partly by the devil himself. But it isn't only done by him, and for this very good reason, that uh, the uh, devil is not omnipresent. I've been emphasizing the great power and authority of the devil. But he's not omnipresent. He isn't everywhere. God is omnipresent. But the devil cannot be everywhere at the same time. You notice that description that uh, was given in the first chapter of the book of Job in chapter 7. 
uh, where, uh, when God asks uh, the devil where he's come from. That day when the sons of God were gathered together and the devil, Satan, came amongst them because he is one of the angels, though fall. And his answer was, uh, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. He's not everywhere. He's not omnipresent. So he doesn't do all this work himself, but uh, part of it is delegated to the fallen evil angels and to these spirits, these spiritual forces that the apostle talks about, these demons, these evil, unclean spirits, as they're often described in the, the scriptures. And thus, I say, the work is carried on. Now, there's very interesting evidence in the scripture that uh, there is a very perfect strategy being implied. For we read that there are very special occasions when the devil does the work himself. I'm going to quote you in a moment an instance of where the devil tempted King David himself. He didn't send an underling, he went himself. And of course we are told in the case of our Lord, it was the devil himself who tempted him. He didn't leave that to some... Uh, subsidiary person. No, he, he did that work himself. Very well. Now, there is the picture of the way in which these nefarious purposes are put into practice by these hordes of evil. Let us remember again the great power of the devil and his forces. The Apostle Peter describes him as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Let's never forget that he's described as that great dragon. The power of the devil is alarming. Our Lord says to Peter that the devil hath desired to have thee, that he may sift thee like wheat. These are indications of his tremendous power. But perhaps the ultimate proof of the power and the confidence and the ability of the devil is to be found in this that he did not hesitate to attempt to, uh, to tempt and to attack. Even the Son of God himself. He approaches him with confidence, with assurance. Why? Well, because he has defeated everybody else. The greatest saints, the patriarchs of the Old Testament, every one of them was defeated by the wiles of the devil. And so he doesn't hesitate to approach our Lord and to speak in the way that he spoke, offering to give him all the kingdoms of the earth if he but bowed down to him and worshipped him. These are indicative, I say, of this great power of the devil. And yet let us notice at this point that it is a limited power. You notice there again in that case of Job that the devil with all his great authority and power is clearly still under the supreme authority of God. It's a mystery this. No one can pretend to understand it. But it is a part of God's great purpose. As we were saying last Sunday morning, in his own inscrutable wisdom, he allowed evil to come in. And in the same way, he is permitting the devil to go on exercising this given amount of power. He could have destroyed him at the beginning. He has chosen not to do so. But it is a limited power. And it's a good thing to remember that in the state of this world this morning, when evil seems to be rampant, when God, as it were, seems to be defeated. That is not so. All that is happening is still under the power of God. The Lord reigneth. There is the permissive will of God. He allows the devil to do certain things. 
And indeed, there is very clear teaching in the scripture that God does this at times in order to punish a foolish human race. He, as it were, abandons them to the devil in order to bring them to their senses. Thus, you see that God can even use the devil and has often done so to bring his own purposes to pass and to punish his recalcitrant people. Very well, now then, there is our general picture of what is taking place. But let us come to the particulars. Because it's only as we come to these particulars we'll see the relevance of all this uh, to ourselves, to our personal experiences, and to the whole condition and state of the world at this moment. Uh, how does the devil exercise this power? In what ways is all this being manifested? Well, it seems to me that the best kind of division is something like this. It's clear in the first place that the devil has a certain amount of power even over nature itself. Now, there again is the important uh, statement made in that book of Job, and that is why we read that portion at the beginning. Because you remember that uh, the devil having suggested to God that Job is such a good man only because God's blessing him, and that if God ceased to bless him, that Job would very soon curse him to his face. Uh, God, as it were, said to the devil, Very well, behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. Go and do what you like, as it were, with Job, said God to the devil, but don't touch his person. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And you remember how he began uh, to act. And he acted in this kind of way. One of these servants reports in verse 16, uh, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the fire of God is fallen from heaven. Now that means lightning. The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them all. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. There is clear teaching that it is within the province and the power of the devil to cause lightning and to cause destruction as the result of lightning. And then you've got another example in verse 19. Here comes another to report and says, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now, there was a hurricane, obviously. Now, let's be clear about all this. The Bible does not teach that lightning and thunder and hurricanes are always the work of the devil. No, it doesn't teach that. Let nobody jump to the conclusion that this is just uh, the ignorance of the ancient people and that they don't understand the weather as we do because they didn't have the meteorological office and have their reports and so on. No, no, the Bible never teaches that at all. It teaches secondary causes. But as it teaches that God himself sometimes acts over and above his own laws in miracles or in sending pestilences or earthquakes, as we are told he does, so we are given to understand here that the devil at times may have a like power, and that he can send lightning. He can send a hurricane. Now, here's a, a principle, of course, which we must bear in mind, that it isn't 
The Bible doesn't offer this as the universal explanation. What it does say is that it may be the result of the special activity of the devil. And in the same way, we see that there is uh, power over animals. The case of the swine, the, the Gadarene men, Gadarene maniac is surely an instance of that, of the possibility of even animals being taken hold of and possessed and uh, used in this way is a part of the manifestation of this power of the devil and his cohorts over the very forces of nature itself and over the brute animal creation. It's a very sobering thought, this. It is something that the modern man, of course, very rarely thinks about at all. And yet it is perfectly clear in the scripture. And I suggest to you it's something that is confirmed by a reading of history. There are suggestions in the New Testament that there were storms on the Lake of Galilee more than once, which seem to be clearly an attempt of the devil to destroy the life of our blessed Lord himself. Well, there it is. That's a part of the manifestation of this power. But I come to something that is for us much more important. And that is, the manifestation of this subtle, terrible power of the devil over man himself. And first and foremost, of course, over man's mind. Now, the devil, we are told everywhere, is subtle. The wiles of the devil. The serpent, we are told in Genesis 3, was more subtle than all the beasts of the field. That's the great characteristic of the devil. The subtlety of sin. The subtlety of Satan. So, obviously, he uses that in order to trip and to trap men and to keep him from God and the blessings of God. He uses it all, most of all, by attacking men in the realm of his mind. Because the, the supreme gift in men is the gift of mind. It's a part of man's original endowment. It is the thing that so differentiates men from the animal. The animal is largely instinctive and instinctual. But man has this curious power of thinking, objective thinking, being able to look at himself even objectively, and being able to reason and to argue and to consider, to be logical. All this is a part of man's original endowment and is undoubtedly a part of the image of God upon man. And though man has fallen, he still is a noble creature, and he still has the mind and this ability. Very well, it's his highest gift, and therefore the devil makes an unusual attack upon the minds of men. Now, the general statement of that has already been given us by the apostle in chapter 2 of this epistle in the second verse, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now, there is a, a general statement of this. You see, what he's saying is this, that uh, everybody who is born into this world becomes a creature of this world. We are all immediately influenced by the mind and the outlook and the way of the world. We all were walking, he says, according to the course of this world, the way the world thinks and does things. And there's no question about that at all. We are all born old, as it were. We inherit traditions and habits and customs 
Wordsworth had it in mind when he put it in his way, shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. Yes, but much earlier than Wordsworth ever understood. It's there even when he's an infant. If they don't begin, they were always there. In other words, it is the course of this world. There is a mind of the world. There's an outlook of the world. There is a worldly way, and everybody falls into that rut. But what is it that determines that? Well, according to, determined by, controlled by, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The devil is controlling this world mind, this world outlook. How does he do it? Well, here are some of the ways. We are told, for instance, that it is the devil who blinds the minds of men to the truth of God. You'll find that stated in the second epistle to the Corinthians, in the fourth chapter, in verses three and four. The apostle, you see, was preaching the gospel, and he is in that chapter dealing with the, the preaching of the gospel. And he says, well, it's obvious, he says, that everybody doesn't believe this gospel. Well, what is it that uh, decides whether a man believes the gospel or not? Why is it that some people don't believe the gospel? And this is his answer. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they believe. Isn't this important and significant? The man of the world boasts about his freedom, talks about free thought. Now, that is the supreme achievement of the devil, to persuade men that at the point where he is most bound, that he is most free. Think of the many thousands, millions in the world this morning who are rejoicing in the fact that they're not Christians. Because of their great minds, great brains, great understandings. It isn't that, you know. The tragedy of such people is that they've been blinded by the God of this world. They are not allowed to see. He's created this artificial mist, this obscurity. He's put these opacities into their very spiritual eyes and they can't see. They're blinded. And it's the God of this world. It is the devil who has done that. Now, it's very difficult for us as Christian people to realize, as we should, that we should be filled with a sense of great compassion and sorrow for such people. It's difficult for us because of their arrogance, because of their pride. But we should feel sorry for them. They're the dupes, the slaves of the devil. They're blinded by him. They can't use their minds. The devil makes it impossible for them to do so. That is the supreme activity of the devil upon the mind of men. But, of course, it, it has manifestations in other ways. You read these Gospels, and you'll be amazed at times at the bitterness of the hostility of the Pharisees and others to our blessed Lord. Now, the case described is not simply that they disagreed with him or that they asked him questions. What you find is there's a malice, there's a hatred, there is a bitterness. What's that due to? Well, that's part of the activity of the devil upon the minds of men. There is nothing that I know of that is more appalling than that. 
than the bitter reaction of people to certain aspects, even of plain Christian truth in the New Testament. They're not content with saying that they can't accept it, that they can't believe it. They become bitter. There's a bitter hatred, an animosity. Now, my dear friend, that is the operation of the devil within you, whether you realize it or not. Why the heat? Why the passion? Why the bitterness? Why this antagonism? That, I say, is something which is indicative of the influence of the devil in his bitter hatred of God. He doesn't want God to have any glory. And it is at the points where God is given the greatest glory in the scriptures that people are generally most antagonistic. They want to hold on to man and his power. And they hate the very thought that God is sovereign in his power over men. Well, there are some indications of the way in which the devil blinds the minds of men and infuriates their spirits. But of course, short of all that, he does it by insinuating doubts. That's what he did at the beginning, wasn't it? That's the story in Genesis 3. He came to Eve and he said, Hath God said? They'd never questioned it before, but he comes with his question. He, in, he, he insinuates a doubt. And this is one of the wiles of the devil when we'll come to deal with that. The way he doesn't say it openly, he plausibly insinuates it. Haven't you found that in your own experience? You've been perfectly happy and suddenly a thought comes to you from somewhere or a suggestion in something that you're reading and it, it, it implies a doubt. It just suggests it to you. And he from the beginning has been tempting men with these doubts. Doubts especially with regard to God and his ordering of affairs. There's a great example of this, of course, in the case of the Apostle Peter himself. And it's a very striking, dramatic example. Peter at Caesarea Philippi, you remember, looked up the account in Matthew 16. He had made his great confession. Our Lord had asked, whom do men say that I am? Whom do ye say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Marvelous. But in a moment, listen, our Lord is telling them about his forthcoming death. And Peter says, Far be it from thee, Lord, this shall not happen unto thee. And you remember how our Lord rebuked him. He said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You know you're being the tool of Satan at the moment. He said, You're being Satan's spokesman. Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. You're not understanding. You're querying this. Our Lord had come to die. Peter queries it, doubts it. Why? Oh, the devil, Satan, get thee behind me, Satan. The devil caused him to trip at this point. And he, he attacks everybody along this line. He tried to insinuate doubts into the mind of our blessed Lord himself. Some of the greatest saints will tell you that he's assailed them with doubts even on their deathbed. That doesn't mean that they accepted them. What they say is that he tried to make them accept them. We are never promised that he's going to leave us alone. Don't imagine that because you're assailed by doubts that you're not a Christian. That is the work of the devil. That's why it's so important to understand this teaching. He will hurl doubts at you. The apostle calls it later the fiery darts of the wicked one. They come at you in every direction. He'll suggest all sorts of difficulties and doubts. Anything to stop men believing in God. There is nothing more important than that we should differentiate between the temptation to doubt and actual doubting itself. Now, the devil is always trying to insinuate doubts into us and into our minds. 
But of course he goes on, he's got many other things that he does. He tries to overwhelm us with a spirit of fear. And that will often lead to a sort of denial. Look at the case of the Apostle Peter once more. Poor Peter. Who says so boldly that though every man would forsake thee, he says, I will never forsake thee. He's going to follow him everywhere. Simon, Simon, says our Lord, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you like wheat. And in a few moments you see the bold, impulsive, Self-confident Peter denying Christ with oaths and cursing. Why? Well, the spirit of fear. Afraid of losing his life. Afraid of the possible consequences. So he denies him. He doesn't know him. And the devil does that. He, he, he tries to alarm us and to frighten us. When you're most obedient to God, he will put up certain possibilities. He says, now, if you will do that, you see, this is what's going to happen. He does it when people are under conviction of sin. They see the truth quite plainly, and they want to yield to it. But he says, look here, you can see what it's going to happen, mean to you, don't you? When you go home, you, it'll cause difficulty there. It'll cause unhappiness. It's going to split your family. And then consider what it's going to do tomorrow to you in your office or in the profession, in your uh, college, whatever it is. And so, you see, he frightens us. This is a part of the work of the devil. Now, you, you don't explain these things psychologically. This isn't psychology. This isn't biology. This isn't nature. This is the activity of the devil, according to the scripture. He's been doing this from the very beginning. He is doing it very actively now. And so he frightens us from the truth. He introduces this craven spirit of fear. And that so often is the precursor of denial of the truth and denial of the law. Let me go on. I'm just giving you a list of the possible ways in order that you may see the relevance of this teaching. False teachings. He's an expert at false teachings. Listen to Paul putting it to Timothy. First epistle, chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit teacheth expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Have you ever computed the amount of attention and, and space that is given in the New Testament to this kind of thing? Doctrines of devils, dis seducing spirits, antichrists, the spirit of antichrist. Look at John's last epistles. Look at the book of Revelation. It's full of this sort of thing. What does it mean? Well, you see, these are just the activities of the devil and these evil spirits. What are they trying to do? Well, what they're trying to do is to detract from the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prove the Spirit, says John. There are false spirits gone out into the world. This is the spirit of Antichrist, he says. How do you know it? Well, it denieth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It creates doubts about his incarnation. It doesn't believe in the virgin birth. It says that he was just a good man, the greatest man that the world has ever known. The spirit of Antichrist, seducing spirits. Yes, they're in the Christian church, and they've been very active in the last century. You see, this isn't man's scholarship. This is the activity of the devil. The apostles were aware of it in the first century. This is where all this boasting about modern knowledge is finally so childish and ridiculous. 
You know, there's nothing new about the so-called higher criticism and about a man saying that Jesus Christ is only a man and that he doesn't believe in the virgin birth and in the two natures and in the miraculous. There were people in the early church who said it all. John has to write his first epistle about just that very thing. The apostle Paul had already seen it. You've got it in his epistles to Timothy there, in his epistle to the Colossians. There's nothing new about it. The devil has been doing it from the very beginning. Has God said, if thou be the son of God? You know, there's nothing really that makes men quite so ridiculous as his pride of intellect. He becomes a fool when he boasts of the modernity of something that is as old as creation. Isn't it tragic? Well, no, these, these are the ways, then, the false teachings. And so he creates confusion in the church. And people begin to wonder what Christianity is. What is Christianity? Is it something that teaches holiness, or is it something that tells me to read Lady Chatterley's Lover? Which is it? You look at what the Christian church is saying, and you can't tell, can you? Because she's saying both. That's the work of seducing spirits. That's the Antichrist. If he can only cause confusion in the church, how happy he is. Here are people who claim to be God's people, accepting a revelation, and look at them. Denying one another utterly and absolutely about the person of the Lord, about the very moral ethical teaching. Oh, how the devil must be rejoicing as he sees the way in which those who claim the name of Christ can be so easily seduced and teach a lie. But it doesn't stop at that. Here's another way in which the devil comes and causes havoc by attacking us with evil thoughts. My dear friend, the fact that you are tempted by evil thoughts mustn't lead you to the conclusion that you're not a Christian. That's what the devil would have you believe, you see. It is his work. I again quote the phrase, fiery darts of the wicked one. Haven't we all experienced it? You may be even reading your Bible. Blasphemous thoughts may come to you. Evil thoughts will come to you. You're not thinking about such things, and you don't want to, but they come. Where have they come from? What's the origin? You great psychologists, explain it if you can. You can't. Here's the only adequate explanation. The devil hurls them. And you often found you wake up in the morning, you've been fast asleep, you wake up. Almost immediately the thoughts come. They're not yours, my friend. You know, this is a very comforting bit of teaching, this, that we're looking at. That's why I'm taking my time with it. Had you thought that all this was remote, you'll find it's the greatest comfort. How do you know, you say, whether they're your thoughts or the thoughts of the devil? I'll tell you. If you hate them, and if you wish that they were not there, they're not yours, they're the devil's. He does it. He attacks us by hurling evil thoughts and blasphemies. He insinuates them. And not only evil thoughts, but evil imaginations. He'll lead your mind along. That's why it's so difficult often to control our mind and control our thoughts and control our imaginations. The devil has power to, to lead them. He's able to do so if you're not aware of it and don't stop him. He will lead your mind and your imagination and thus he'll make you captive and he'll make you intensely miserable. And then, of course, I've already talked about certain fears. I'm talking now about fears in a more general sense. You go to a pagan country and you'll find it's a country of fear. 
afraid of everything, afraid of the dark, afraid of spirits in woods, in trees, in the heavens. A pagan country, a non-Christian country is always a country of fears, phobias. Oh, that's the tragedy of the world without Christ. It becomes more and more fearful. It's happening increasingly in this country as we go further and further away from God and Christianity. Mascots and uh, interest in astrology, all these things are coming back. What's why? Well, well, it's a manifestation of this spirit of fear, afraid of everything. This is a part of the devil's machinery for keeping us all under his power. He keeps us in this fearful state. These fears are quite irrational. And that's a very good way of testing. There are people who are victims of fears. Their lives are dominated by fears. Now, the thing to do with them and the thing for them to do with themselves is this, is to consider the utterly irrational character of their fear. For instance... Take somebody who's afraid of what we've been reading about a hurricane or something like that. Well, a hurricane is something very frightful. But there are some people who are dominated by this fear. And what they ought to ask themselves is this. Why should I always be drawing the conclusion that it's only going to attack me? What about all the other people? Why am I not as they are? And so on. These fears are irrational when they're due to the devil. Some fears are partly temperamental. We're not all the same. Our nerves are not all the same. I'm not saying there's anything essentially wrong in the fact that some of us are more fearful than others. But what I am saying is this, that when you've got a spirit of fear, that when you're dominated by a fear, you should be able to see that there is this irrational element, that it's beyond nature. It's something worse than that. There is a horror about it, and there is no adequate explanation for it. That is always the work of the devil. And so he keeps people captive by holding them under the dominion of these irrational fears. Let me give you another category, and that is depression and discouragement. Oh, this is one of the most remarkable manifestations of the activity of the devil. He does it with non-Christians, he does it with Christians. He depresses the mind. How does he do it? Well, by making us over-concentrate on ourselves. We're always looking at ourselves and examining ourselves. Always looking at the past, something we did in the past which we shouldn't have done. He'll keep us looking back. And we are depressed. We doubt whether we are forgiven. We doubt whether we are children of God. We feel unworthy. We feel unclean. We feel our lives are a failure. And there we are, miserable and unhappy, and the devil is rejoicing and roaring with laughter. Why? Well, because he says, there's a Christian for you. That's your Christianity. Can't you see the wiles of the devil and how wrong it all is and how we all ought to detect it? You have no right to remain in such a depression because you're assured here that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's a God who heals the backslider. He's a God who receives back the prodigal son. The past shall be forgotten. A present joy be given. You have no right to look back. You have no right to be perpetually looking in. You have no right to be depressed. If you are, you are just succumbing to the influence of the evil one. Depression, discouragement, sense of failure, sense of utter and complete hopelessness. But then let me go to the next, which is the exact opposite. Pride. Oh, the wiles of the devil. Some would have you believe, you see, that the devil always depresses. He can do the exact opposite. Pride. That was the mechanism he used in the case of Eve, wasn't it? Hath God said? You know, he said, you're much too good to be held down like this. Why shouldn't you eat everything in this garden? 
Why does God say, what right is he to say that you're to stop at this point? He played on her pride and she was lifted up with pride and she fell, so did Adam. I said I'd quote you the example of David. Listen to 1 Chronicles 21, 1. David, you see, it had great victories. He conquered everybody. All his enemies were defeated. And I read this, 1 Chronicles 21, 1. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Oh, the devil and his subtlety. When you've conquered all your enemies, that's the very moment he comes in and says, well, now then, just... Uh, Count your great success. Count heads. Count the number of your people, the extent of your kingdom. And so he caught David on this question of pride. And you remember the terrible consequences that followed to David and to the children of Israel. Oh, what a terrible temptation this is. He passed us up with pride. So the apostle Paul, in writing to uh, Timothy about the appointment of bishops, elders, presbyters, overseers, says this. He says, don't appoint a novice. He says, never put a man who's only recently converted into a job like this. Why? Lest being lifted up with pride, he falleth into the condemnation of the devil. And oh, what tragedies have happened in the life of the church and in individual lives because that exhortation has not been followed. Here's a star turn, a marvelous convert. Put him right into the front at once and he's been ruined. He becomes proud of his past sin. He begins to boast about his own evil life. Why? Well, because it makes him important. Don't promote a novice, says the apostle. If you do, the devil is certain to get him. Keep to these rules. But of course, this pride manifests itself in so many different ways. Pride makes us oversensitive. And when we're oversensitive, we are very easily hurt and we feel hurt. Oh, what havoc has been wrought in the Christian church through this. Pride, the devil playing on it, working on it. Leads to jealousy, leads to envy, leads to a sense of grudge. We're not being appreciated. Somebody else is being put before us. So, you see, the devil can upset a church, he can upset a community, and he's so often done so, and his object is gained. What is it? Well, to spoil God's great handiwork, the most glorious thing of all, the grace of God in salvation in the church. And there it all seems to be in ruins, and the devil has triumphed again. He plays on our pride as well as on our tendency to depression. You know, this is a very practical passage we're dealing with, isn't it? Oh, you say, principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world. What's it got to do with me? My dear friend, it's got this much to do with you, that most of the unhappiness you've known in your Christian life has been entirely the result of the work of the devil and these powers, and you didn't know it. You thought you'd got a good case. You'd got a real grudge, hadn't you? You hadn't, you know. It was your ugly pride. You were filthy pride. And the devil playing on it like a master pianist, knowing exactly where to put the pressure and where to relax it. Oh, thank God we've got a passage like this to open our eyes. He plays on man's mind. There are other ways. I'm simply giving you headings. Add to that that he plays on man's moral nature by tempting him by rousing lusts and passions and evil desires. And, you know, he can even work upon a man's body. In the second chapter of Job, verse 7, I read this. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job. God had given him permission to go further now, having attacked God's, uh, Job's sons and his animals and so on. Job had stood the test. All right, said Satan. 
That's all right, because so far I haven't touched him. You let me touch his body. You wouldn't let me touch his body. You let me touch his body. Then he'll begin to squeal. Then he'll curse you. All right, says God, you go and do it. Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with some, with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. The devil did that. Oh, you say, you're teaching now that boils are always the work of the devil. I am not. I am simply teaching once more that they may be they may be. Of course, there are diseases due to secondary causes, but they may be due to this. And so you can add to your list that the devil can cause dumbness. He can cause blindness. There's a woman in Luke 13 of whom I read this, that she'd had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bound together and could in no ways lift up herself. And this is what our Lord says about her. Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound for these 18 years to be loosed? That, he says, was the work of the devil. It wasn't a disease. And so you find, uh, talking 1 Corinthians 5 about delivering a man to Satan, that uh, for the destruction of the flesh. And so you find Paul saying about himself in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Infirmities, weaknesses, yes, sicknesses and illnesses may be the result of the devil's activity. I'm not saying always, I'm saying they may be. He has this power. And these, therefore, are some of the ways in which he exercises these wiles of his and is able to bring his to pass his evil purposes of causing confusion and chaos in the work of God and holding men and women captive and separating them from God and his glory and the blessings that he is waiting to offer us. Well, we must leave it at that this morning. There are other ways which we will have to consider. There's the whole question of spiritism. There's the whole question of devil possession, demon possession, and various other matters which, God willing, we shall consider on another occasion. Let's leave it like this this morning. You and I are set in a position where we are subject to these activities. If you realize that, you will realize there's only one thing to do, and that is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And as I repeat again, take unto you the whole armor of God. You are facing a most relentless, subtle, intelligent, powerful foe who can attack you from all quarters. There's only one place of safety. Put on the whole armor of God that he may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Amen.